Before we turn to Paul, I want to spend, because I was too long-winded as usual, I want to take just two or three minutes to highlight the key ideas in the, the noble vineyard owner. Please notice at the bottom of the page, the scribes and chief priests tried to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people, for they, the people, Preserved the, uh, perceived that he had told this parable against them, against the, scri- the scribes and the chief priests. By the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the Pharisees fade away. They argue with Jesus, disagree with him, but they want nothing to do with what is happening in Jerusalem. It's the chief priests, along with some members of the, of the scribal party, that are his problem. And what happens here, right before this parable is Jesus comes and occupies the temple. We call it the cleansing of the temple. Uh, But he takes over the whole space. Now, it's 35 acres. And Mark says he didn't allow anybody to pass through. There were seven entrances. And obviously, he had taken control over this space of 35 acres and didn't allow anybody to enter or exit for the entire day, which means... He shut down the entire sacrificial system for the day. Now, you move into St. Peter's in Rome, and you and your friends take over the cathedral and shut down all of the masses on a given Sunday, and you close all of the exits and entrances so nobody can pass through. The next morning, they'll want to talk to you. So the next morning, Jesus has the courage and the boldness to go right back into the same place where he had shut down the afternoon sacrificial system. Now, why did he do that? He's saying it's obsolete. We really don't need it anymore. Looking forward to his own cross. This is my space because I am the Messiah of God. Uh, This is, I'm leaning on N.T. Wright for this interpretation. I think he's absolutely correct. So they sidle up to him and say, now, on whose authority do you do these things? Come here and shut down the sacrificial system. And he says, okay, okay, you want to ask me a question? I want to ask you a question. John the Baptist, was he of heaven or was he of people? Was he an ordinary person or was his message from God? They're scared to answer and say, we don't know. And then Jesus replies and says, you haven't got the software loaded to figure out who John the Baptist was. You definitely don't have the software loaded to figure out who I am, and I'm not going to tell you. But I will tell you a story. And the story is the story we have before you. And he starts off, a man planted the vineyard. Now, would you turn the page, please, to the last page of your first set of study sheets. And this is the vineyard, the parable of the vineyard that he is retelling. And we all know this, but it falls into four sections. In the first section, Isaiah sings about this wonderful vineyard which God has planted. And then in number two, God, the owner of the vineyard, walks on stage and says, I want to have a court case with, uh, with the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judea. And then number three is extremely harsh. harsh. I'm going to wipe out the vineyard. And then number four, the prophet uh, now uh, comes on stage again and identifies the parable, the, the symbols 
that are built into the story. This is the nimshal. In Hebrew, the meshal is the parable, and the nimshal is that extra bit of information you need to understand what the parable is all about. And it's all right there. Very, very harsh, and it's the, it's the parable, sorry, the vineyard is going to be destroyed because God is angry with the vineyard. All right, now back to the page right before that, and this is the parable of Jesus. Jesus is retelling the parable, but it is much, much milder than the one that is his model from which he draws a great deal of imagery. A man plants a vineyard. They're immediately thinking Isaiah 5. And he comes, he sends a servant to the tenants that they should give him the fruit of the vineyard. The tenants beat him up and send him away empty-handed. He sends another servant and they beat him up and treat him shamefully, which is worse than beating him up. He sends a third and him they wounded and cast out, and Mark says, and they killed him. All right, now, in the traditional Middle Eastern world, all through the centuries before Jesus and centuries after, the representative of the big man is considered the same as the presence of the big man, and particularly a statue. For example, the emperor didn't allow a statue of the emperor, especially except in places where cities of the empire where he wanted special favor, and he would allow a statue of himself to be built. And in the days of John Chrysostom, the, probably the most famous preacher of all Christian history, in the late 4th uh, uh, century, uh, there was a statue of the emperor in Antioch where he was preaching, and the emperor raised the taxes, and ruffians in town got mad, so they put a rope around the statue, dragged it off the statue, and started dragging it around town, and everybody was terrified because they thought the emperor will send an army and will raise the town and sell everybody into slavery, and that's, that's the end of Antioch. They were scared to death. And John Chrysostom sent out word, I'm going to the church and I'm going to preach. And the people came, and he preached a series of sermons, 17 of them, one each day. They've been preserved, and they're called the Sermons on the Statues. And you just sense the terror that was in that society. If you had somebody chasing you because you'd murdered someone, if you can get to the statue of the emperor and throw your arms around it, nobody can touch you for X number of days. You can get a lawyer and try and get the police to protect you and whatever. Uh, there's a very interesting discussion in the Midrash Rebbe, the great commentary on the early books of the Old Testament, that talks about this poor hunter who's after a bird with his bow and arrow, and the bird goes to the central square, and he lands on the head of the statue of, the, of not the emperor, but the governor of the province. Up, oh, bird got away. You can't shoot an arrow even if you miss the statue. You shot an arrow in the direction of the statue of the governor. And you're going to get it if you shoot that arrow. Uh, so he's really discouraged, and he goes away. He can't shoot his arrow. Uh, there is a very interesting discussion about the plagues and why did God get so upset that he, had, he came himself and gave the tenth plague. Answer, Moses walked in on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was not polite to him. Pharaoh told him, get out of here and go back to work. God is mad because his representative has been treated in a rude fashion. And so then God decree, comes himself and decrees the tenth of the ten plagues. Rabbinic interpretation of the story of the Exodus. So what's going on here is the master sends one servant, he's badly treated. He sends a second and he's treated even worse. He sends a third, he's treated even worse. Now what is the master going to do in the middle? The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? 
call out the troops, get a posse of armed men, surround that vineyard, fight it out with these people that are roughing up my representatives, and we will deal with them because we demand justice. And we're going to get it. That's what we expect. After considerable reflection, the vineyard owner says, I will send my beloved son unarmed and alone. That's presupposed. Maybe they will feel shame in his presence. We translate that maybe they will respect him. But the word in Greek is feel shame. Our Middle Eastern versions, Hebrew, Arabic, and Syriac have always translated it literally because they are a shame-pride culture and they understand these things. There's a wonderful story which I picked up in the early 80s that happened in Jordan. We were in Beirut at the time. I heard it through the oral tradition. And just a year ago, I was speaking to a group up in Wisconsin. An elderly gentleman came up and said, Dr. Bailey, I was with the CIA in the American embassy in Jordan at the time this story happened. And you have all of the details exactly right. We know this story happened and we officially uh, uh, substantiated its historicity. And this is not just a fable. You, you, You got the story right. This is what happened. That one night, King Hussein, whose, uh, whose palace was in the middle of a military complex, uh, came to him and said, we have just discovered there are about 75 officers who are planning a military dictatorship and take over the country in the name of a military dictatorship. That's happened in Egypt, it's happened in Syria, it's happened in Iraq, and they want to do it here in Jordan. Shall we surround the building and arrest them? Hussein thought for a minute. And by the way, Hussein had a cross on his chest, a gold cross that he wore most of his life. I know because one of my students saw it. It was underneath his shirt, but it was there. He said, no, bring me a small helicopter. I mean, he's the king. You, you can't say no. <laughs> they brought it. He knew how to fly the helicopter, and so he told the pilot, you sit in the passenger seat. And he flew the helicopter to the building which he knew in another military complex at the edge of Amman where, the, where the, uh, this rebel crowd was meeting at that time. He landed quietly on the roof and he told the helicopter pilot, if you hear gunshots, take off, don't wait for me. He then walked down into the meeting from the roof and said to them, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that the purpose of this meeting is to finalize your plans to have a revolt against the current government and to overthrow this government and to take over in the name of a military dictatorship. If you do this, the army is going to split in half. There will be civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people, both military and civilian, will die. There's no need for that. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. And only one man will die. There was a stunned pause. They rushed forward and kissed his hand and his feet and pledged loyalty to him for life. There's been no difficulty so far as the ruling family of Jordan with their military ever since then. He risked 
everything. He risked a crucifixion. He achieved a resurrection. That shame, same shame, pride culture produced the story that we have before us. They, will, they are expecting an army to show up and surround the place and fight it out. Now the son walks in alone, unarmed. No guards, no armed men, no posse. And they will look at him and say, Ahib, shame. And they will give up their rebellion. And Jesus is telling the people, this is who I am and this is my authority and this is what I have come to do. To call you to respond to my vulnerability in the form of a costly demonstration of love. Which is possible because I have reprocessed my anger into grace. The two stories end differently, I understand. But please notice that Jesus' opponents are the chief priests, not the people. The people applaud, understand, and applaud what he is doing. Okay, now throw those sheets down, please, and take off the second set, and we're going to go at our theme in Paul. What time am I supposed to be done? 12.20. Not 12.20. 12.20? Wow, you mean I got an hour and 45 minutes? Uh, it's 20 to 12 now. It's 20 to 12. I got the wrong watch here. Okay. Oh, this was the watch I was using. I was using Baton Rouge. I, just, I forgot. Uh, the absent-minded professor strikes again. Okay, here we go. I'll get another watch. Oh, okay, all right. 12.20. So we got 40 minutes, right? Yeah, okay. That's fine. Yeah, I... Uh, okay. What we want to do is to follow our theme. Does everybody have a copy of the, of the section? Everybody needs to have the study sheets. You just got to have them or you'll not be able to follow. While those are being passed out, let's talk for just a brief minute about how I am deeply convinced Paul has put the First Corinthians together. I've been working on this 35 years, and now finally it's written up in a book, and I'm sinfully excited about it. Hoping that uh, seven tons of German scholarship is going to have to go. So, uh, uh, but never mind, never mind. If if they like it out there, fine. If they don't, uh, th- this is what I see. What I think Paul is doing is in the opening verses. We're now looking at the first page of your study sheet. Does it say B nineteen up in the corner? Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is because these came out of a, a larger set, and I've picked uh, pages out of it. This is the way Paul opens, and let's just go through it and we'll see, see what's going on. Paul starts, ah, oh yes, the God is referred to in 1 and in 4 and in 5 and in 8. In number 1, we find there God has a will, and in 4, we find out God is our Father, and in 5, we find out God extends grace, and in number 8, we find out that God is faithful. And then, amazingly, every one of these eight cameos has something to say about Jesus. So there are eight statements about Jesus. And every one of them says something 
about the believing community. So we've got something about believers. And you can make a study of the person of Jesus by looking at those eight. And you can make a study about the nature of God by looking at the four. And you can look at the nature of the church by studying the eight that are there as well. That's why it is so incredibly dense. But Paul starts off called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. Now, I can't prove this, but I'm 90-90% sure that I'm correct in affirming that this Sosthenes is the same Sosthenes that shows up in the book of Acts. As I say, I can't prove it. Uh, who is this guy in the book of Acts? Paul comes and preaches in the synagogue... And some of the Jews hear his message and say, yes, Jesus is indeed the Messiah of God. You convinced us, even though he was a crucified Messiah, and we didn't expect that. But you make a good case, and we'll go with it. And then others didn't. The head of the synagogue joins Paul. Finally, they decide they've got to move out and worship across the street. And then the folks who say, no, we can't buy this package, have to elect a new head of synagogue. And the guy's name was Sosthenes. Under the leadership of the new head of synagogue, they decide they're going to bring a case against Paul before the Roman courts and try to get him thrown out of town. They bring the case, and the Roman court says, look, this is a quarrel between you as Jews. It's got nothing to do with us as Romans. No Roman law is broken, and you deal with this yourself. They are publicly humiliated by having their case thrown out. And so what they do is they beat up on Sosthenes right in front of the judgment hall, and the Romans don't interfere. Did anybody call on Sosthenes that night? Well, the, the Jews who are, who've not accepted, accepted Jesus as the Messiah are not going to show up because they're the ones who beat up on him. The Christian church, Jewish and Gentile, are not going to show up because, you know, he tried to get their leader thrown out of town. I think Paul went to see him. Reprocessing evil into grace is a part of Paul's DNA. I think he went to see him and I think he told him, Sosthenes, I feel very badly about the way this turned out. You did what your conscience led you to do and I had no intention that you should be harmed. And I'm very, very sorry. Sosthenes can't get over it. The only person who comes to see him is the very guy he tried to get thrown out of town. And in time, Sosthenes decides Jesus is the Messiah of God and joins this new Christian church. And Paul, sitting over in in Ephesus, writing this book for the Corinthians and for the whole church, as we will see in a minute wants to zip this past somebody who knows all the intricacies of all of the various leading families and relationships between them there in Corinth, and Sosthenes is the right guy. And so he reads all of this to Sosthenes, and so Paul is saying, look, uh, don't say this foreigner who wandered in here and stayed here for a year and a half and now he's gone. How on earth could he understand what's going on in Corinth? I mean, he's not one of us. Sosthenes helped me write this book. It gives us an insight into Sosthenes and also into Paul. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those made holy, that means those who have the Holy Spirit in their life. It doesn't mean those who have achieved a certain level of sanctity, called out as saints, called out as a people with a holy lifestyle. Together with all those who are called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every meeting place of them and of us. This is the only time Paul ever says this. 
He writes a letter to the Romans. He writes a letter to the Galatians. He writes a letter to the whatever. And he always names the church to which he's sending it. This is the only time he says this is for the Corinthians and for all those literally on whom is called the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sending this to you, the Corinthians, and I'm sending a copy of it to every church out there. He never says this again. The church generally, all through the centuries, accepted this until we got to about 200 years ago. And then scholars start in the West started to say, no, no, that's not possible. I mean, he's talking about somebody shacking up with his father's wife and they're getting drunk at Holy Communion. Of all, all Paul's letters, this is the most specific. He's just, well, he's probably trying to remind the Corinthians that they're a part of a wider fellowship. But this is not a general letter to everybody. All of the church thought it was up to the Reformation. And I'm with them. I think this is the letter sent to everybody. It will make considerable difference as to how you read it. When Paul says, you, plural, are the body of Christ, is he talking about the Corinthians or is he talking about everybody who calls upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? You are the holy temple, you, plural. Is it just the Corinthians or is it every Christian out there? You know, the Russian Orthodox, Baptists, uh, Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, uh, everybody out there, all of us, even a few, at least a few Presbyterians, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, at least a few, you know, uh, that, that's what he's talking about. This makes huge difference time and time again when you take that seriously. And he uses the phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a rare phrase, all four words. The word Lord is the word kurios. That would ring the big bells for the Romans and the Greeks because Caesar was Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. Can't have two of them. And then Jesus, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is Messiah, and this is for the Jewish reader. Jesus the Messiah. So if you're a Jew or a Greek and you read Lord Jesus, ah, yes, okay, we've replaced Caesar. This is very dangerous stuff. If you have a Jewish background, Jesus the Messiah, and that will ring the changes for you out of your heritage. And it is our Lord Jesus Christ, not the Lord of the Greeks and the Romans and not just the Messiah of the Jews, but our together. Paul mentions this four times on this page, once in the very next text, and he doesn't mention this again until he gets to the end of chapter 15 and he drops in our Lord Jesus Christ just once more. This is a golden thread with which he ties up the beginning until the end. The whole book, I'm convinced, is five essays. The first one is on the cross. The second one is on men and women in the human family, sexuality and a theological foundation for it then Christian and pagan, then back to Christians in worship, men and women and leadership in worship, and finally the resurrection. The first one on the cross and the last one on the resurrection are a pair, men and women in the human family and men and women in the church, and that's a pair, and the center has to do with Christian and pagan, and the center of the book of Romans is Christian and Jew. Both of these are deliberate. Why do we have the outreach to the pagan in the center and we've got the cross at the beginning and the cross and the resurrection together at the end? It's because these two provide a launching pad that launches the church out beyond itself with a, with a message of hope and renewal and redemption and salvation for the world. 
Okay, now we go on here. Number five, I, gi- I give thanks to God always for you because of... <sighs> what on earth can he put? Uh, for other people, I give thanks for your faith. No, no, that won't work. They're denying the resurrection and trashing the cross. Uh, I give thanks for your good works. No, no, this guy's sleeping around with his father's wife and they're getting drunk at Holy Communion. I give thanks for your loyalty in the gospel. They're yelling and screaming and dividing up into parties, and that won't work either. He can't think of anything amongst the Corinthians for which to give thanks. So what he does is he gives thanks for the grace of God given to them. There's ex-family, and Johnny is always getting into trouble, and he is a difficult child. And every night at supper, Dad looks across the table and says, Johnny, every night I give thanks for your dear, patient, long-suffering mother who cleans you up and gets you into clean clothes and gets you looking relatively decent at supper time. Now, this is not a compliment to Johnny. (laughs) That's what Paul does. You hardly notice it. But he can find nothing in them for which to give thanks. So he gives thanks for... A lot of grace has been shown to them. Now, what they've done with it is something else. That you, may in, that you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony to Christ or of Christ. To Christ, is a, that means the testimony about Christ. The testimony of Christ would mean the Jesus tradition, which I actually think it's better. And the New Revised Standard has that in the text. When Paul gets to the very end of the book... He says, do everything that you do in love. Six verses later, he says, anyone who has no love for Jesus Christ, may they be cursed. It's a passive, divine passive. May God curse them. Uh, You just asked your readers to do everything in love. What's going on here? How are we to understand this? Obviously, they understand who Jesus is, and they know what he said, and they know what he's done. Or Paul couldn't write that way. If this were some unknown figure, figure lost in the, in the mists of an, an unreliable oral tradition, he couldn't possibly write that way. They know who Jesus is, and they know what he said and done, and Paul can talk that kind of language. Uh, I'm told... That uh, in, in upper crust British circles, we'll have uh, the gentleman front correct us or not, that a gentleman is somebody who never insults anyone except on purpose. <laughs> have you heard that? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. He, yeah we, our, our expert here in all things British has, has confirmed that this, this is known. Okay, what does that mean? Never by accident. I'm never misunderstood. If I want to give you a bloody nose, I give you a bloody nose on purpose. You never do it except on purpose. Okay, Paul, the best way he can express love to those who know who Jesus is and know about him and they do not love him is to say, may God curse you. The underlying assumption is Jesus is known. Here, the testimony of to Christ was sustained among you, and you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. They're very proud of their spiritual gifts. Then he goes on to talk in a way that I find absolutely amazing and stunning. As you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's that great phrase again, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is flashing the mirror of eternity and he's saying one day 
I will see you standing guiltless before our Lord Jesus Christ. How on earth can he say that? Allow me to return to a stunning moment in the history of the Anglican diocese. This was about this was a general convention about 10 years ago in which a ghastly demonstration against Bishop uh, Duncan had been made and it was awful and some of you were there and I just it was just really a shameful thing that took place and in the bishop's reply he quoted the following I've taken it from him Sir Thomas More if you remember opposed uh, Henry VIII and opposed his divorce and remarriage he was then in, the, the, uh, Thomas More was in prison for a long period of time was tried found guilty and then condemned to die so the last word that his judges said is, record, is remembered and recorded, and his reply is recorded. Here they are. The judges said, Sir Thomas More, you are to be drawn on a hurdle through the city of London to Tyburn, there to be hanged until you be half dead. After that cut down yet alive, your bowels to be taken out of your body and burned before you your private parts to be cut off, your head cut off, your body to be divided into four parts, and your head and body to be set at such places as the king shall assign. Sir Thomas More's final words to his judge were as follows. More I have not to say, my lords, but that like as the blessed apostle St. Paul, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, was present and consented to the death of St. Stephen and kept the clothes of those who stoned him to death. And yet they now both sing holy sanctuses in heaven and shall continue their friends forever. So I verily trust and shall herefore heartily pray that though your lordships have now here in the earth been my judges to my condemnation, we may yet hereafter in, me- in heaven merrily all meet together to our everlasting joy. And thus I desire Almighty God to preserve and defend the king's majesty and to send him good counsel. You talk about reprocessing anger into grace. Amazing. Paul holds up the mirror of eternity and says, let's look at this problem in the light of that mirror. He will do it again and again and again all through the, all through the letter. Now, would you turn the page, please? This is how he sets out the problem. Every one of these five essays that I've just mentioned has the same basic outline. There is a reference to the tradition, then comes the problem, then the theology out of which the problem must be solved. Paul goes back to the problem in the light of that theology, and there's a final appeal at the end. Either imitate me, or imitate me as I imitate Christ, or I have, think I have the Spirit of the Lord, or a summary of the essay, and he does this five times. This is now the setting out of the problem. He's rung the changes on the tradition the, the word of and about Jesus, now he's going to say the problem. What is the problem? The problem is uh, number one, and number two, and number three is what Paul wants, and number four and five and six is what he finds. 
I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, all four words again, that you agree and there be no divisions amongst you, that you be united of the same mind of the same judgment. And he said, I've got, I've got data that you are quarreling amongst yourselves. What I mean is, each one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Caesar, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? I think we're talking about ethnicity here. The people who say, I am of Paul, that's the Romans. Paul's a Roman citizen, and they're happy with him. I am of Apollos. He speaks good Greek. He grew up in Alexandria, and he doesn't have an accent, and he's got a nice polished tone, and they like to hear that kind of Greek. I am of Cephas. They don't use his, his, uh, his Gentile name, Peter, but rather his, his Jewish name, Cephas. And they're happy with him because, you know, he's a Jew from the Holy Land and not from the diaspora like, Peter, like Paul is. Or I am of Christ. There's another crowd off in the corner who thinks that they are really the true Christians. They're not quite sure about their priest, but they're praying for him. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and they're very, very sure that the true Christians just represent the little clique that's off here in the corner. That crowd has also showed up in Corinth. Is Christ divided? Now, what bell is he going to ring? to try and bring these, four, these three ethnic communities together? What's big enough? What sounds deep enough? It's the cross. Would you turn the page, please? The ultimate reprocessing of anger into grace is the cross. Does that mean that Jesus is angry through Holy Week? Of course it does. Does that mean he's angry as they nail, put, drive the nails into his hands? Of course, he's human. If he's not angry, then he's not human. We don't like to think about that because we don't like to think about Jesus getting angry. He does three or four times in the text. He does when the man with the withered hand shows up and they're trying to trap Jesus and they don't care about the man. He gets angry on other occasions and he tells parables about people who are getting angry. It's a reflection of who he is. So what happens? He prays for those who are crucifying him, as we know. And what happens the first thing Easter evening? When the disciples have got locked doors, they're scared to death. Who's next? They don't know. And Jesus appears in the midst of them. And what is he going to say to them? They all ran away. And this is the first time they've seen him, and they have not witnessed, except for John, they have not witnessed the cross. And he has every right to say to them, where were you? While you were out, we had a little problem. Maybe you heard. Oh, you didn't want to watch me suffer. It was too hard on you to do that. That's okay, guys. My mother was there. First word, peace be unto you. It's not just a greeting. It's a drama of reconciliation. Then he shows them his hands and his side. And he repeats it, peace be unto you. Then he breathes, then he gives them the commission. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you and breathes on them with the Holy Spirit, without which that challenge is totally impossible. So the reprocessing of anger into grace 
is at the heart of the cross and the heart of the resurrection. Here we are with Paul setting out this wonderful hymn to the cross. You were on page B22, if you would look at it, please. What Paul does is notice the little cameos. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then he repeats them backwards, as we will see in just a minute. And not only that, but he's divided it into three sections, and the outer sections have mostly four lines, and the inner sections have two lines. And that's exactly the model that we saw in Isaiah 28. It's a classic Jewish-Hebrew model from the writing prophets. And when Paul gets to the very, very center, he says, we preach Christ crucified, and Christ crucified shows up in number one, and it shows up in number 13. We Back to number seven, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Those four lines all have seven syllables per line, and they all rhyme at the end, and they come out as follows. He meis dei kerusomen, Christon estauromenon, eudaios men skandalon. This is a Semitic poetic meter, which Paul uses in Greek. (laughs) Try that sometime. (laughs) Take a poetic meter out of Greco-Roman literature and write it in the Semitic literature and have it useful, have it come out. Ah. But he uses no beautiful language, right? What's he talking about? What do you mean he uses no beautiful language? He says, lest the cross, this is number one, be emptied of its power. What's he talking about? He's talking about, well, first of all, he's saying, as we find, I think if I can find it here just a minute. There was, there's a wonderful quotation of a visitor to Corinth, just a Greek visitor to Corinth, just a few years after Paul was there. And his name is Dio Chrysostom. Chrysos, and he writes, and he's talking about the Isthmian games that were taking place while he was there, crowds of wretched sophists around Posidian's temple shouting and reviling one another and their disciples, as they're so-called, fighting with one another, many writers reading aloud their stupid works, many poets reciting their poems while others applaud them, many jugglers showing their tricks, many fortune-tellers interpreting fortunes, lawyers innumerable perverting justice... And peddlers, not a few, trying to sell whatever they happen to have. A big, noisy gang of people, everybody trying to get attention. Paul is saying, I'm not joining them. This is happening around you every time you have the games. But I'm not joining. That's part of what he's saying. But he's saying something else. We're back now to page 22. Uh, He's something, something much more important. How does Wise words empty the cross of its power. Paul is here debating with Pericles. Fifth century BC, Athens fights Sparta, and in the first round they think they've won. Actually, the war went on for 28 years, and at the end of which they lost. But at that first stage, they thought they'd won. And so they decided, well, we've got to have a big celebration, and we should have a great speech 
over the tomb, an epitaphios, a, a speech over a tomb. We get the word epitaph from this. And it should be polished oratory. Well, the most famous orator was Pericles, the guy who built the, the Parthenon. And so he was ordered by the council of the city to write a speech and to use the most polished rhetoric of which he was capable. And so he wrote the speech, and after he'd written it, it was considered a grand success. And in the opening verses, he says, I'm giving you the most polished orator of which I'm capable. And when he gets to the end, as the law requires, he gets to the end and he says, I've given you the most polished language of which I'm capable, as I was expected to do. It was such a success, they decided to have it every year. And uh, then six of them have survived, of which Pericles is, is the most famous. So Jesus, so Paul is now going to give a speech over the death of a champion who died to save. And every Greek listening is going to think Pericles. And so Paul at the beginning and at the end makes quite clear. The power of what I have to say is not the power of the language. The power of what I have to say is the event in history. Something happened in history. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among you and died among you and rose victorious over sin and death. And this is the event that gives the power to the cross and to the resurrection. And my speech doesn't add or detract anything. All I'm doing is trying to expose the power that is already there. And if you're looking for a fancy speech like Pericles, now a part of why they expected Pericles to, be, uh, to have a fancy speech is already there in the language of Plato who talks about these speeches. And he, talks, he writes in his essay uh, or his dialogue with Menichenos. And he writes, this is Plato, a few years later, and writes as follows. Death in battle is certainly in many respects a noble thing. The dead man gets a fine and costly funeral, although he may have been poor, and an elaborate speech is made over him by a wise man who long ago prepared what he has to say, although the one who is praised may not have been good for much. But the orators steal away our souls with their embellished words. And they praise those who die in war and all our ancestors who went before us. And they praise ourselves also who are still alive. And until I feel quite elevated by their laudations and I become enchanted by them. And in a moment I imagine myself to have become a greater and nobler and finer man than I was before. And this consciousness of dignity lasts with me more than three days. And not until the fourth or fifth day do I come to my senses and know where I am. In the meantime, I have been living in the island of the blessed. Such is the art of our rhetoricians. And in such manner does the sound of their words keep ringing in our ears. Noble words are a memorial and a crown of noble actions, which are given to the doers by the, uh, given to the, doers by the hearers. A word is needed which will admonish the dead and gentle, admonish the living and praise the dead and to imitate their virtue. So the, the speech over the tomb is something everybody understands and Paul says, I'm not giving you one. Now he does it with the most beautiful language of which he is capable. This is like somebody who is just a, a beautiful woman who has just, just won the competition for what's the highest one? Um, Universe? Miss Universe. 
Miss Universe. Just, just one Miss Universe. And they ask her, do you, how do you feel? Do you have something to say? And she says, yes, I do have something to say. Outer beauty is not significant. What really matters is the beauty of the soul. Now, if she says this, boy, it's got a real punch. Paul is giving this incredible rhetoric with this magnificent work of art. And in it, he says, I don't have beautiful language. That's not the point. The point is what God did in history. And I am trying to elucidate that event. I do not add any meaning to it. All I do is try to explain the meaning and power, the wisdom and power that is already there. Now, the whole hymn, as you can see quickly, is about wisdom and power. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the wisdom of Athens. He's just come from Athens and argued with the people on Mars Hill. And Corinth was the largest Latin colony of the entire Roman Empire. And of the inscriptions that the archaeologists have found in the 20th century, of the 117 of them that they have found in stone, 105 of them are in Latin. So Latin was the first language of that particular colony. Their common language, because a lot of people there didn't know Latin, was Greek. But still, sort of the official high language for everybody was Latin. And Paul is saying, we're talking about the wisdom of Athens and the power of Rome. When compared to the cross, neither one of them really are worth anything. Because the power and the wisdom of the cross is greater than the power of Rome and the wisdom of Athens. And don't get yourself spooked by either one of them. We are looking across the ages to the end of history and we have a hold of a dynamic which God has set loose in history that is more powerful than both of these because they're both going to disappear. But the power of the cross is going to go on from strength to strength. I'm able to understand this, my own simple way, by the very story which we have just seen. When the father chooses to reprocess his anger into grace, this is the wisest thing he could have done. It is the most powerful thing he could have done. And the two combined make all the difference. When God decides he's not going to just beat up on sin, but he is going to come with total vulnerability and his divine word through whom all things were made will come in the form of a human being with that total vulnerability and will achieve victory over sin and death. In that, there will be set loose in history a power that makes Rome look weak and makes Athens look stupid. And that's what this great hymn is all about. Uh, yeah, the, the, yes. Look, look at the center of page 22, if you will, please. There is, in this one also, we've got one very critical mistake that we have to straighten out. The little phrase at the end of Cameo 10, for consider your call, brethren, we have attached historically to what follows. I'm convinced that it should be attached to what comes before. Why? Because the word called shows up in number nine. And that's the only place that the word called shows up in this entire hymn. What Paul is doing at the end of sections 4 through section 10 is to contextualize what he said for his readers. 
And he's saying to them, I've told you that the cross is the power and wisdom of God. And it is more powerful than Rome, and it is wiser than Athens. I've said it quietly and indirectly, but that's what I'm saying, and you hear me. And your own calling confirms this. Why did you walk in the door? Why did you walk in and decide that Jesus was actually the Messiah of God? Or why did you as a Greek walk in and say, this is greater and more powerful than the wisdom of Athens? Why did you do it? Did we convince you with our logic that we're smarter than the people across the street? I don't think so. Did you see us as an army on the march and you were convinced we were going to win battles and people were going to get a lot of booty and you wanted to join the winning team? I don't think so. You walked in the door even though you are going to take huge risks because Caesar is no longer Lord Lord for you, but Jesus is. And if you think about why you came to this decision of faith, deep in your own soul, you saw the cross as the wisdom and power of God beyond the wisdom of Athens and the power of Rome. All right, the next line, we have read, there's no verb to be in that line in the Greek text. Very bad grammar. You've got to put a verb to be in in English, and you have to put a verb to be in in Greek. But if it's present tense, you don't have to have a verb to be in Hebrew. Because Hebrew has no verb to be in the present tense. So when Paul accidentally leaves out the verb to be, the natural assumption is that he's talking about present tense. We have made this a past, and we've added two more words. Of you. The phrase of you is never in any Greek text or any translation to anything other than English and one in Syriac, unfortunately. Early Syriac put in the words of you. So we have taken the end of number 10 and we've taken the first line of number 11 and read it. For example, consider your, your uh, call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And who is the, what is the instrument in the hands of God to make the wise look stupid? The Corinthians. We've read it that way for a thousand years. Now, if that's right, the Corinthians will be able to boast to the highest heavens. We are the bee's knees above everybody else. God chose us to shame the wise and to make the powerful look weak. I mean, the rest of you guys aren't worth much, but we're worth a lot. Then Paul says, I'm writing this, number 12, so nobody can boast. Come on, man, you just gave them a reason to boast to the highest heavens. It's got to be wrong, folks. It has to be wrong, or the whole thing falls apart. So how do we straighten it out? Very simply, you take the first sentence and realize that Paul is summarizing what he said before, and you take out the past tense, make it present tense. Paul is thinking in Hebrew with no present tense verb needed in Hebrew. There isn't one. And take out of you, not many wise according to the flesh, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Don't worry about those wise folk. I argued with them up in Athens, and they are very few. Don't let them speak you. 
and those powerful people, Rome is not as powerful as you think they are, but the foolish things, neuter plural, not masculine plural. What foolish things did God choose to shame the wise people? Now we have masculine plural. Apparently, they were a bit confused as to what he was talking about. So he adds a long footnote. The weak things, neuter plural, God chose to shame the strong things. The low-born and contemptible things in the world, God chose even the things, neuter plural, that are not to make powerful the things that are. He's talking about born in a manger and dying on a cross. He's not talking about the Corinthians. What is the instrument in the hands of God to make the powerful look weak and make the strong make, make the wise look stupid? It is the cross, not the Corinthians. The whole hymn is about the cross. What has happened to Pilate? He's gone. What has happened to Caiaphas? He's gone. What has happened to the power of Rome? It's on the wane. And the power of the cross is growing day after day after day. The whole thing turns around and, and also uh, chose the thing, the low-born. If, if he's saying low-born, that's an insult in, in Middle Eastern speech, low-born. You're from a Ilawatia. You're from a low-born family. He's, is he insulting Priscilla and Aquila that he's staying with, who seem to have some money because they've got a house in Corinth and they have a house in Athens and prob- in, in Ephesus and they probably have a house also in Rome? And there are people who have houses that are big enough that the whole church can meet in one house. There is some aristocracy has believed. Is he insulting them as well by calling them lowborn? Of course not. He is praising the cross as the instrument of God that makes the powerful look weak and makes the wise look stupid. And he, gets, he says to them, I am only going to preach the cross of Christ. Would you, our time is just about up. Would you skip over page 23? And skip over page 24, and we've talked about page 25, and let's look at page 26. The very same lines, folks, that we saw 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, can also be put together the cross, the word of the cross, those who accept and those who reject, the opponents who fail. The opponents who fail are then repeated and then we're back to the message and those who accept and refuse and back to, to the Christ crucified and then the whole cycle repeats again. This is one to seven and back. It's also one, two, three, three, two, one, one, two, three, three, two, one. And both of these two literary styles are superimposed on the same lines. This is counterpoint with two melodies being played at, the, played at the same time with the same, with the same piece of literature. Would you turn the page, please? Where does Paul get this? He gets it out of the great servant song of Isaiah 50, and here it is. You can see where the arrows have gone, and you can see the three themes, and you can see the summaries on the right. And the summary on the right tells you that Paul is saying to his Jewish readers... Don't think that when I talk about Christ crucified, this is something that is estranged from the tradition that you have always believed. No. Look at the servant songs of Isaiah, particularly the fifth, the the third of them, and at the fourth of them, and you will find that this unique servant of God suffers, and through that suffering there is redemption. And I am going to, Paul says, I am going to take 
the rhetorical structure of the third of those servant songs, and I'm going to use it as a pattern to talk about Christ crucified. And every learned Jew in the congregation will follow this. And every Greek in the congregation, turn the page, 28, will look and see that the contrasts and comparisons with Pericles, there is a whole series of things which are the same as Pericles. Number five, the question of language. He disagrees completely. The interplay of I and we. Pericles also starts off with, with we and ends up with I, has we in the middle and returns to I at the end. The question of power. For Pericles, it was the power of Athens. And Paul says, no, it is the power that God affirms and seen in the cross. What does Paul not mean? He doesn't mean anti-intellectualism. He is not rejecting the method of relating to classical Greek sources. He does not think that he failed in Athens and thereby is not changing his evangelistic methodology as he approached Corinth. He is not rejecting rhetoric and poetry. He is not offering an excuse for sloppy sermon preparation. You know, I was really busy this week, folks, and I didn't have time to put anything very, very good together. But as Paul says, you know, I just came preaching Christ, and that's all I have to do. Great, great excuse. But it doesn't work. He is rejecting Pericles' frame of reference as a lens through which to view the cross. Conclusions regarding St. Paul's method and accomplishments... Pericles' epitaphios and probably Plato's menochenos were known to Paul. Paul began with Isaiah 50 and composed a hymn to Christ crucified for Jewish readers. The hymn was then reshaped in the light of Pericles' oration for Greek readers. Paul accomplishes this without sacrificing content. Paul thus offers a new epitaphios logu, a new speech over a tomb in praise of a new hero who died in a new way to save a new people. It was God who took death on the cross that was demeaning, shameful, weak, and stupid and transformed it into wisdom and power. After completing the hymn to the cross, he adds a few explanatory notes for clarification. The final page, page 29, gives you the theology of this fantastic piece of literature we've just examined. I urge you to read that and to reflect on it. I'm sure it could be improved on it. I only worked on it 35 years, and every time, every time I went back at it, I found I could do a little better. We're dealing with something that is a great mystery beyond all of us, and I'm serious. You, you can improve upon it, but perhaps this will be a start for your own reflections. I'm four minutes over. I apologize for doing so. Thank you for your courteous attention.